Um, I think my main kind of um, sat-nav uh, moment um, came when I was in France. I'd been in Paris with a few friends um, watching England uh, lose the Rugby World Cup final, not, not actually in the stadium, but um, on big screens. And the following morning, we uh, set out um, to come back to England, and we, we had a sat-nav, and we uh, typed in the, the port we were going from, and I think it was Boulogne on the uh, north coast of France, obviously. And um, so we started going, and then uh, after about 15 or 20 minutes, we began to kind of say to each other, I didn't you know, recognize this bit when we came in a couple of days ago, and uh, gradually everywhere began to get less and less built up, even though we thought we were going, needed to go through the city a bit. Um, and we suddenly realized after 15 or 20 minutes that we were totally lost. And we looked at the sat-nav and kind of zoomed out from the road view to the big map view and realized that the Boulogne we were headed towards was uh, somewhere right in the center of south, so uh, center of France. So we were going entirely in the wrong way. And um, I think that's the problem with uh, sat-navs, um, that you don't realize often before it's too late just how lost you are or even that you are lost at all. And we've got something of that in our passage um, this evening with the older son. Um, one, of the, one of the brothers is um, very obviously lost, uh, estranged from his father. He ends up in the pigsty. And um, the other, he stayed with his father all the time. But we're going to see he's just as lost. Uh, let's just notice as we start verses 1 and 2 exactly who Jesus is talking to. It says, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So um, Jesus is kind of reaching a crisis point in his ministry. He's become uh, too popular with the unpopular people, and they in turn with him, and the religious uh, leaders don't like it at all. They don't like it one bit. But Jesus is talking to both groups, and as he begins the parable what's called the parable of the lost son, but should be lost sons, it says this. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Well, we should be shocked by that, shouldn't we? That uh, his younger son is asking for his inheritance, which clearly only comes when somebody dies, but his his father's very much alive and kicking. And there doesn't seem to be any kind of thought as to what this is going to mean for the family. It's going to mean um, probably embarrassment to to his father um, when other people in the the town are asking him what's going on. He's having to say, yep. I had, to, I had to sell up uh, part of the estate because my son wanted to leave. There's going to be a fri- financial strain, isn't there? And um, that's not to mention uh, the pain, the emotional pain it was going to cause his father. And um, I don't need to tell you probably that the, the father in the story is meant to represent God. And I think lots of uh, people treat God just like that, just like the younger son. They're not interested in having a relationship with God. They just want uh, the things that he gives. They act like he doesn't exist, uh, like he's an irrelevance, perhaps an inconvenience, maybe. But they want things from him. And their slogan is there in verse 12. Father, give me, just give me. Give me your money and I'm off. And the shocking thing is that the father does give him that. My dad wouldn't do that, I'm sure. Um... But this father, he does, he sells up. He gives his son 
his youngest son, his share of the inheritance. But why? It wasn't due yet. Well, again, because this uh, story represents how God deals with people. And ever since the, the Garden of Eden, it's true, isn't it, that God has never, he's never forced people to have a relationship with him. He doesn't force us now. See, the father in the parable knew that to force his son to stay was to kind of demand an outward conformity when what he wanted was a real relationship, a loving relationship. The same is true for us. You see, we, as human beings, we have our free will, but it's a great risk to God. He risks rejection because he won't accept from us a dry religious conformity. He wants a real heart relationship with each of us. So in the story, the son goes. But as we, as we heard, as we can read, life doesn't work out well for the young man. It seems to start so promisingly. Uh, he's having fun. He's, his living is wild, we're told. Read between the lines, you know. Sex, drugs, rock and roll and all the rest of it. Crazy times. But the good times can't last. And because of a bad famine, verse 14, he begins to be in need. And things get so bad uh, that he ends up feeding pigs. And again, verse 15 would be a shock. If we were Jewish, it would be far more shocking. You know, pigs were unclean animals. The Jews would never have been around them. Wouldn't go near them. And yet the son has to feed them, has to look after them. He's so desperate, he longs to eat their food. He's facing starvation, shame, and he's completely alone, verse 16, and no one gave him anything. Well, his bid for freedom hasn't worked out very well, has it? And that's why he left the father. You know, he was, he, he was bored. He didn't want the kind of responsibility of being a son and all that meant. He didn't want his kind of pestering father looking over his shoulder, seeing what he was doing all the time. He left to be free. But verse 15 tells us now he's a servant. And again, that's the picture the Bible gives us, isn't it? Time and time again of just what it's like when we make uh, a bid for freedom from God by ignoring him or resenting him, forgetting all about him. Well, there's going to come that point when realisation dawns when we aren't free at all. It's like a, like a fish in a stretch of river, and he's been there for a, a while, and you know he kind of likes it, but he's a bit bored with just looking at the same reeds and the same lily pads uh, all day long. And uh, beyond the stream, he can, he can look up and he can see the big wide expanse of sky and he can see fields and and trees and he thinks wow you know I'm really being held back here aren't I I'd love to experience some of that the big wide world and the fisher makes his bid for freedom he jumps up onto the bank and you know he breathes in the uh the fresh air and he can see the fields and he can see the trees close up now and they look exciting but obviously fish are made for water And away from it, they're in all sorts of trouble, aren't they? And just the same is true for us as human beings. We're made for a relationship with God. And whether we recognise that or realise that now, we are. And uh, if we aren't in that relationship, then we're in all kinds of trouble. But thankfully, the parable doesn't leave the son in the pigsty. And verse 17, we read that this guy came to his senses. He realised how low... He had sunk. He realised what trouble he was in. 
And perhaps there are some here tonight who are at that point, even now. Um, Maybe it's unfulfilled dreams. Life hasn't worked out uh, quite how we wanted it to. Maybe there's been a, a broken relationship or maybe there's you know an unhealthy addiction that uh, we wouldn't want to admit to to anyone else well please keep listening because the good news is coming um, and maybe there are others who aren't even at that point yet they're still in you know the party phase life is exciting there's so much to explore well let me warn you that uh, the good times can't last that's what the parable says if you think you you don't need God you You don't need him at the moment, especially. You're only young, maybe. Well, my prayer is that you'd uh, come to your senses, like the younger brother here in verse 17, to realise, actually, you're in trouble. You need God. That's what you're made for. Well, secondly, uh, come back to the father. You see, for the prodigal son, coming to his senses meant he had to do something. He reasons it out, doesn't he? He says... uh, Look, verse 17, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? Here I am, starving to death. I'll set out and I'll go back to my father and I'll say this, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Well, he knows he's in trouble. He knows he needs his father and he knows he needs his father's forgiveness. Can you imagine how nervous he was as he took those first steps home? Well, what kind of uh, welcome would you expect from your uh, father, from your parents, if you're done something similar? Maybe, maybe a quick hug, uh, you know, a, a quick kiss. Um, you know, I'm glad you're home. But do you realise what you've done? Do you, do you know what you've put me through? For others, perhaps, uh, if we saw our um, child coming and they'd done that to us, we were sitting on the porch. Perhaps we'd, you know, withdraw into the house. We'd wait for them to come and find us to tell us exactly what they were thinking. We'd, uh, we'd make them well aware of just how much they've hurt us. And um, if the father had said when his younger son came home, I no longer consider you my son. I want nothing to do with you. It wouldn't be wholly unreasonable, would it? And there are lots of cultures and religions where that would happen. You know, if um, someone marries uh, the wrong person, if they do something to bring shame and dishonour on their family, then the door is shut. And the sun is out there for good. Look with me at verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, this father's been keeping watch. He's been sitting on his porch every day, looking to the horizon, hoping against hope that this is going to be the day when he sees his son in the distance. It's incredible. And today is the day. Today is the day. He can see his son. He's not dreaming. What does he do? He runs out, which again, um, for men in those times, was totally unheard of. He would have had to kind of pull up his skirt, as it were, to, uh, to run to his um, son. And when he sees him, he grabs him, he hugs him, embraces him, kisses him all over. It's extraordinary. It's an extraordinary display of unreserved and undeserved love, isn't it? And you can imagine, um, as the son walked home, all the way he'd been practicing his speech just to try and get it right. Verse 21, he, he launches into it. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
and there's no mention from the father about a debt to pay. There's no conversation about how things can never quite go back to how they were before. No, he doesn't even let his son finish his speech, does he? He doesn't tell him, you know, how much he's hurt him, no. He cuts him off before the son can mention anything about being a servant. And he orders a ring, a robe, to be put on him, to reinstate him to his position in the family. And he throws the mother of all parties with the prodigal son as the guest of honour. Um, Tim Keller, whose book, The Prodigal God, and uh, sermons um, on it are so, are so good, calls it assertive forgiveness. And it's quite, it's quite a good phrase, assertive forgiveness. That um, the father's forgiveness doesn't even wait for his son to repent. The father runs out to his son, embraces him, kisses him. And that gives the kind of opportunity for his son to say sorry. And God is just the same with us. You know, he doesn't expect a long kind of babbling prayer of repentance to make, to make us well aware of just how much we've hurt him, just what we've done. No. The son coming back is, is proof enough he wants to be back with the father. And the same is, of course, just as true for us. Just coming to God, simply saying, God, I've messed up. I'm sorry. I need you. Well, then God's running out to meet us. He's wrapping us tight in his arms. He's covering us with kisses. That's the love God has for us, for each and every one of us, no matter what we've done. Let me read a story. They say the first time uh, Sarwat went to the top floor of the hotel, he was shocked. He'd never imagined it would be like this. Every room had a window facing into the hallway, and in every room sat a girl. Some looked a bit old and were smiling and laughing, but many were just 12 or 13. They looked nervous and frightened. It was Sarwat's first adventure into Bangkok's world of prostitution. It began innocently enough, but soon he was caught up in it like a piece of wood in a raging river. Soon he was selling opium to customers, propositioning tourists in the hotels. He even went so low as to help help buy and sell young girls. It was a nasty business, but he was one of the most important young businessmen in Thailand's sex industry. Sarwat disgraced his family and dishonoured his father's name. He'd come to Bangkok to escape the dullness of small village life. He'd found excitement, and for a while he prospered in this sordid life and was popular. But one day the bottom dropped out of his world. He hit a string of bad luck and was robbed. And whilst trying to climb back to the top, was arrested. Then everything went wrong. Word spread in the underworld that he was a police spy. And he ended up living in a shanty by the city rubbish dump. One day, sitting in his shack, he thought about his family, especially his father. He remembered the parting words from his simple, from his, his father, a simple Christian man from a small village in the south. I'm waiting for you. Well, would his father still be waiting for him after everything he'd done? Would he receive him home after disregarding all he'd taught him about God's love? Word had long ago filtered back to his village about his life of crime and sin. Finally, he devised a plan. Dear father, he wrote, I want to come home, but I don't know if you will receive me after all I've done. I've sinned greatly, father. 
please forgive me. On Saturday night, I'll be on the train which goes through our village. If you're still waiting for me, will you tie a piece of cloth on the poetry in front of our house? During the train ride, he thought over his life of evil. He knew his father had every right to refuse to see him. As the train finally neared the village, he was filled with anxiety. What would he do if there was no white piece of cloth on the tree? Sitting opposite Sarwat was a kind stranger who noticed how nervous his fellow passenger had become. Finally, Sarwat could stand the pressure no longer, and the story burst out in a torrent of words. He told the man everything. As they entered the village, Sarwat said, Oh, sir, I cannot bear to look. Can you watch for me? What if my father will not receive me back home? He buried his face between his knees. Do you see it, sir? It's the only house with a poetry. Young man, your father did not hang one piece of cloth. Look, he's covered the whole tree with pieces of white cloth. He could hardly believe his eyes. There was the tree covered, and in the front yard his old father was dancing up and down, joyously waving a piece of white cloth. His father ran beside the train, and when it stopped at the little station, he threw his arms around his son, embracing him with tears of joy. I've been waiting for you, he exclaimed. Finally, come into the party. Please look at verse uh, 28 with me. Why isn't the older brother glad like his father that his brother's come back? Why wasn't he running out to meet him? Why isn't he organising the party? When in fact we're told instead he doesn't even go in. He's angry. Verse 29, he says, look, there was no point in me being the dutiful son all this time. In fact, he doesn't even call himself a, a son. He says he's a slave. All these years I've been slaving for you and I've never had a party like this. And it is hard to believe, but without leaving home, the older brothers become as far estranged from his father as his younger one ever was in the pigsty. And the older brother shows us the danger, the problem of being good people or good churchgoers without having a real, without having a re- real loving relationship with God. You see, actually the brothers are quite similar. Neither really wanted the relationship with their father, just what he had to give them. It's just they went about getting it in different ways, didn't they? And I think that's why the older brother's quite so mad. Verses 29 and 30. You see, in the end, his strategy of uh, getting the good things has turned out to be a waste of time. He might as well have been a prodigal like his brother. It sounds like he would have enjoyed it more. It's interesting, he mentions his brother wasting money on prostitutes when we're never told that explicitly. Is that what he wished he had done? You see, um, there are two ways to be lost. One is by being very bad, and that's pretty obvious because you end up in the pigsty. And the other is being very good. And that should surprise us, I think. But the problem of being very good is that in our heart of hearts we think, well, I do try my best. I do try and be good. I do try and do what I think Jesus would want. And the danger of being good is that uh, Jesus becomes nothing more than a role model to us. Um, maybe a boss, but not our saviour, not our love. G.K. Chesterton had a great quote, which was, let your religion 
be less of a theory and more of a love affair. Let your religion or your faith be less of a theory and more of a love affair. And I think, our friends, that we should always be worried about the older son and being like him because all of us were uh, younger sons at one point. But perhaps now um, we tend more to be like the elder sons. You see, we serve like him. We, we help on PCC. We run children's group. We have a house group in our home. But have we missed the most important thing? And as we end, let me just pose a few questions we might want to ask of ourselves to see if we're tending towards older brotherness. Firstly, is there an undercurrent of anger in our lives? Does it wind us up when we see other people getting ahead, maybe? You know, friends or neighbours. How did they get that job that pays so much money? How can they afford that house? I mean, do you know what they're like? I do. Elder brothers are often angry because things don't seem to be going quite so well for them. Maybe, uh, secondly, we feel um, a superiority to others. And again, this might not be something that we would um, verbalise. And, it, and it, it might be religious or, or, or cultural or class, maybe. Um, but to be honest, we're quite proud of uh, what we've done, how we're living our lives. We're proud that we root um, our values in being successful, in being nice, being neighbourly. So we look down on others. And we see younger brothers and we think, well, to be honest, they brought the trouble on themselves, didn't they? Why should I feel sorry for them? And I was convicted of that uh, a few weeks ago. I was watching um, the news and there was a horrifying um, piece on the news about families in the Philippines, poor families, where where parents um, were sexually abusing their own children. And, and filming it to earn a little bit of money to stream onto websites uh, that paedophiles in the West could could view. And I thought to myself, that is disgusting. Who could do such a thing? How could a father do such a thing? Scumbags. And uh, a few hours later, I was uh, reminded that Jesus Christ died for those men, those parents in just the same way as he died for me. And he needed to die for me just as much as for them. And the Father's arms are just as wide welcoming them home as they were for me. And finally, um, is our Christian life really just a duty? Despite all the activity, have we missed out on that real heart, that real loving relationship with God Is there joy in your Christian lives? Do we rejoice that uh, knowing just what we were like, that Jesus was prepared to come and die for us? Do we rejoice in that? Do we rejoice that he's the older brother, the best older brother that we could ever imagine? The one who did run out to find us when we were lost, when we were far from God. The one who gave up his place in heaven that the ring of sonship might be put on our finger. The one who lost his robe and his clothes when he was whipped and beaten and crucified, that the robe might be put on us. The one who drank from the cup of God's wrath, that we might drink from the cup 
at the feast of the Lamb in heaven. Do we glory? Do we glory in that, friends? I hope we do. Well, the 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 remedy of older sonness is to see afresh, remind ourselves again what the father's like. Look at verse thirty-one. You see, the father comes out to both sons, doesn't he? His father went out and pleaded with him. He's got just the same compassion for his older son as the younger. He knows how he feels, but he wants him to understand. My son, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate. We have to be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. It's that important. He was lost and is found. So let's not be too proud. Let's not be too convinced of our own goodness that we won't come into the party. We won't celebrate with God because we don't share his joy. Let's be amazed afresh that the Lord of heaven and earth wants that father-son relationship with us, that he calls us in, he comes out to us with great compassion. We mustn't, we mustn't compromise being in heaven at the best party ever because we're convinced already that we're good, because we've forgotten our need for Jesus' death on our behalf. So please, uh, let me ask you to come to your senses, to come back to the Father, to come into the party.